Okay, so this is our Simon Don uh, reading group. We're continuing with our uh, reading of Individuation Volume 2, the um, complementary text to uh, the individu Individuation book itself. Uh, and so we're on the last of those texts, Form Information Potentials. Um, so we, we started it last time and we, we've looked at, um, um, so there's a, I guess it's a kind of uh, difficult text to um, summarize, but we've looked at uh, some of the ancient philosophy that Simondon is using to um, develop his concept of form uh, or to, he, he's borrowing the concept of form from uh, ancient philosophy. And so he talks about, um, uh, we, we went through the section on Plato, uh, and today we'll look at the part on Aristotle, uh, but he, he takes the concept of form to be essentially an asymmetrical concept in the sense that the form uh, has a higher information content than the matter on which the form is imposed. Uh, and so he takes it that um, the form-matter relationship uh, for Plato is modeled on the technical process of um, stamping a coin. Uh, so the, you have a, a stamp um, made of iron or steel or whatever, um, some hard metal, um, and you use it to impose a, a particular form. You engrave the form backwards in, in the stamp, and then you impose that form onto a, a soft metal like gold, um, and, and that's what uh, produces a coin. Uh, and so there's a, an asymmetry between the, uh, the stamp which contains the form or which um, realizes the form and the uh, the matter, the gold that um, receives the form. Uh, and there's also a, a similar or a, a parallel asymmetry between the, uh, the stamp and the coin that results from the stamping in the sense that um, the, if you lose one of the coins, then you've just lost one uh, instance of the form. Uh, you, you can easily just, use the stamp to produce a new coin to replace the one you've lost. Whereas if you lose the stamp, then you have to recreate the stamp um, by, say, copying one of the other coins. And in that process, you've lost information. So each, uh, each copy or each instance, each coin that you produce is slightly imperfect in relation to the stamp. Uh, there's always, um, whether it's a bit of dust inside the the stamp or the metal is not 100% um, even and, and there's some irregularities. Um, so each coin is, is slightly irregular. Um, and so if you try to copy the coin to produce a new stamp, then you've copied a, an imperfect copy. Uh, and so you've lost information. You, you can't get back to the original stamp. Um, and so it's in this sense that the, um, the stamp is uh, a higher information value or information content than the coin that um, is used it is a, a copy of that stamp um, and and so this um, this asymmetry is characteristic of the notion of form in general uh, whereas uh, the notion of information is a, a symmetrical one in the sense that when you have a um, for example a telephone line or a telegraph line. These are the types of um, communication processes that Simon Dolan is thinking about. Um, the telephone line uh, can transmit information in either direction, and then the, um, the uh, signal that transmits information about the emitter um, 
uh, if it's a um, a perfect line or if it's a line that doesn't lose information, then the um, the receiver receives the exact same content of information as the emitter uh, emitted. So uh, there's no uh, loss of information across the line. Um, um, and uh, you could send the same signal right back to the emitter and and have uh, um, and have it um, sort of received the the uh, an echo of the signal it sent out in the first place. Um, and so there's there's a symmetry or a reciprocity of information as opposed to the asymmetry of um, of form. And and so Simondon is going to try to um, understand how this distinction between symmetry and asymmetry arises and, and how we can think those two concepts together um, as, as we uh, proceed through the text, we'll see that a bit later. Okay, so let's start on the part on Aristotle. Uh, so we're on page 680 of the PDF, if anyone is following along. Um, so I'll read the first um, page or so and go from there. Conversely, the form of the hylomorphic schema presented by Aristotle is a form that is within the individual being in the sunolon, in the everything together that the individual being is. Form is neither anterior nor superior to genesis and phthora, to generation and corruption. Form intervenes within the play of interaction between structure and matter within the sensible being. It does not lack a rapport with matter. Matter aspires toward form like the female towards the male. There are tendencies in the in, in the living being, which is a field of reciprocal and complementary interactions. Instead of the vertical relation in Plato, a horizontal relation between the individual being and the form prevents thinking in group terms, like a microcosm, which is analogous to the city. In Aristotle's doctrine, we have a signification given to the individual being based on an implicit or explicit biology. If Plato represents a pure sociology become metaphysics, according to which the structures of the group and the group of all groups, the universe, have become an archetypal form, Aristotle, on the contrary, represents the inverse tendency, the initial choice of the individual being, in order to find the explanation of becoming in the processes of interaction that it contains. Becoming consequently appears constitutive of the being. In Aristotle, there is an ever-subjacent ontogenesis, whereas in Plato this is not the case. On the other hand, in Aristotle, the hylomorphic couple, the matter-form relation, explains becoming, which pushes the being toward its state of entelechy, its full realization, Whereas with the eternal form, Plato is forced to, to explain becoming and even the creation of sensible objects by appealing to a power that is not eidos, that is not structure. This power is the good, to agaton, which is epikenates osias, uh, illuminating the world of the ideas, thereby projecting, so to speak, the shadow of the ideas as sensible objects, just like the sun projects the shadows of objects, or like the thaumaturgist, pyr mega kaiomenon, great fire that burns projects the image of wood carvings and andrianta onto the display wall for the viewing pleasure of the, of the crowd. The relation of exemplarism with its progressive degradation starting from the idea truly shows the existence of a motor that is neither a dos nor the relation between the idea and the sensible, between the form and the matter having received form. This power, potentially completed by that of the demiurge, is never inherent in the idea or in the rapport of the idea in the domain that receives structure. Conversely, in Aristotle, there is a power of becoming within the hylomorphic couple. The matter-form relation inside the living being is a relation that pushes toward the future. The being tends to pass to its state of entelechy. The child grows because it tends toward the adult. The acorn, which contains the virtual essence of the oak, the form of the oak in the implicit state, tends to become a fully developed adult tree. Here, there is indeed a somewhat horizontal interaction between matter and form with a certain degree of reciprocity. 
in the domain of knowledge, this leads Aristotle to an empiricism because it is the individual that is first. And insofar as the individual is the sunolon, it harbors the power of becoming. Man relies on the sensible encounter of the individual being to found knowledge, and the form alone no longer contains all knowledge. The course of knowledge no doubt consists in going from abstraction to abstraction. From the different senses, one passes to common sense, then to the more abstract notions. But when one goes from the apprehension of sensible objects toward the notions of species, then from notions of species towards those of genera, one loses some information, some perfection of knowledge. And in Aristotle, the highest notion, that of being, is also the emptiest. There is an inverse correlation of comprehension and extension. A term that is applied to everything, like being, is almost devoid of content, whereas in Plato, since the archetypal form is first, the knowledge of the one or knowledge of the good are the highest and the richest. We therefore have an occurrence where two approaches oppose one another. Moreover, it could be said that thought, since Plato and Aristotle, has benefited from opposing the two senses of the notion of form in these two thinkers by rendering them as the extremes of the role attributed to form and structure whenever we wish to explain processes of interaction. Aristotle's form is perfectly suited to becoming and the individual in becoming because it conveys virtuality, tendency, and instinct. It is an especially operative notion. It is consequently better suited for interpreting ontogenetic processes, but it is much less suited for understanding groups. The notion of the city in Aristotle necessarily invokes the notion of inter-individual convention, whereas in Plato, the first reality is the group, the city, such that the individual is known as an analogue of the city, a reproduction of its structure, a microcosm in opposition to, his macro to this macrocosm that the city is, a microorganization that reproduces the macroorganization. This involves an individual typology founded on a social and political typology, a democratic or tyrannical structure, the mental and moral organization of the artisan or magistrate, are individual modes of being. The city and the caste are the first realities reflected in the interior regime of the individual and give it a structure. Right, so here we have the contrast between um, between Aristotle and Plato. Um, and there's a few points of this contrast that Simondo highlights. Um, so one is the um, signification of becoming is different between Plato and Aristotle. So even though um, Simondo pointed out that Plato uh, apparently, in his later life, uh, tried to develop an account of becoming and included this in his uh, esoteric teaching that was not recorded in the dialogues. Um, uh, this was a sort of secondary addition for Plato or something that um, it, uh, comes later um, as opposed to the primary doctrine of the forms, which are eternal and unchanging. Uh, whereas for Aristotle, the form is essentially something that um, that brings about development um, and uh, transformation of entities. And so um, the acorn uh, includes the form of the oak tree, or it contains that form of the oak tree that it uh, tends toward. The, the acorn um, develops towards the adult oak tree that um, it has the form of within it. And in the same way, the child, um, the human child develops into an adult human being because there's this form that sort of pushes it forward towards this end state of being an adult human being, which is the, the form that, it, that, um, that the child contains. Um, and so for Aristotle, the, um, the form is not something eternal um, and unchanging that, is, that um, finite uh, temporal beings sort of approximate to or, or participate in, but the forms instead are um, principles of change, they, they bring about the transformation of entities um, in, in such a way that those entities come to realize those forms. Um, and uh, another uh, point of the contrast between Aristotle and Plato here is that for Plato, 
um, the knowledge of the forms is uh, is prior to knowledge of the individual entities that participate in those forms. Uh, so we um, the sort of exemplar of knowledge for Plato is mathematics. We uh, so and this mathematical knowledge is a kind of reminiscence. So there's the the Mino in which Socrates um, guides the slave to um, proving a mathematical theorem. Uh, by means of questions. And so he takes this to show that the slave actually has this mathematical knowledge, uh, but just has to have it sort of brought out of him, um, even though he never received a mathematical education. Um, and for Aristotle, on the other hand, the sort of um, uh, paradigm of knowledge is biological knowledge. So Aristotle, of course, wrote um, extensively about animals. Um, there's the history of animals, which is a huge sort of encyclopedia of basically every animal that was known to the Mediterranean world at that time. Um, and there's also parts of animals um, and some other texts um, uh, on generation corruption, for example. Um, anyway, there's a, a whole set of texts on the theory of animal life in, in Aristotle. Um, and so for Aristotle, this is sort of the, the um, exemplar of what knowledge is, is that we start from individuals uh, and then we abstract from uh, those individuals to form a species concept, um, uh, dog or human or whatever. Uh, and then we um, abstract from that, uh, from a group of species concepts to form uh, a genus concept and so on. We continue up this progression of abstractions to um, uh, eventually reach the, the most abstract and emptiest concept, uh, which is that of being. Um, so the whole sort of system of knowledge is a hierarchy of concepts that are subordinated to each other and uh, that we ascend this hierarchy through abstraction. Uh, and then the, I think the last point of the contrast between Aristotle and Plato that Simon Don um, mentions here is that um, for, for Plato, um, our knowledge of individuals is always, uh, or, or of human individuals at least, uh, is uh, a kind of analogous knowledge in the sense that we we take um, uh, our knowledge of the individual is um, uh, gained by analogy with our knowledge of the city, uh, of the group in which the individual um, finds itself. So in the same way that the city is composed of different um, groups of people that have different functions within the city, likewise the individual uh, is composed of uh, sort of subunits that have different functions or, or different um, uh, sort of capacities of the soul um, that uh, have different functions in the life of that individual. Uh, and whereas for Aristotle, we, um, rather than grasping the, uh, the individual on the basis of the group, we instead grasp the group on the basis of the individual. So uh, the individuals come first, and then we understand how they come together to form a city. Um, uh, and there's a kind of convention in the formation of a city. It's not something that exists naturally. It's it's something that the individuals bring about through their action. Um, so again, there's a, a sort of difference of direction in terms of where we start from in thinking about the group individual relation, and then which uh, yes, where we start from and then where we go uh, from there. Uh, they, Plato and Aristotle sort of uh, work in opposite directions in understanding that relation. Do you think that when he says that um, in Aristotle there's 
an ontogenesis. He is using it in the more traditional sense, like in opposition to phylogenesis, because otherwise it might be a little surprising that, you know, given the critique of volume one, in volume one of hylomorphism to sort of concede a theory of ontogenesis to hylomorphism in the Simondonian sense, I mean. Um, yeah, I think you're right that he's not using it in his specific sense here. Um, um, I'm not sure that it's precisely in opposition to phylogenesis, though. I think the idea here is that, um, so there's an ontogenesis in the sense that there's a, a coming to be of an individual. Um, um, so the, you know, the, the oak tree that arises out of the acorn, for example, um, um, and again, this is not um, an ontogenesis, or this is not a, a satisfactory account of ontogenesis for Simon Dome because of the um, uh, you know, reasons that he outlined in volume one, the criticism of halomorphism, because it leaves this obscure zone between the uh, form and matter and so on. Um, um, so this is not a satisfactory account of ontogenesis, but it's still uh, sort of pointing at ontogenesis as a phenomenon to be explained. Um, I think that's the the sense in which um, there, there is an account of ontogenesis in Aristotle, even if it's not a satisfactory one. Whereas in Plato, um, the, the forms pre-exist uh, and then through some sort of obscure process, um, entities participate in those forms. Uh, and and you know, Plato gives sort of um, a mythological picture of the, the demiurge uh, uh, imposing these forms onto matter to form to form the cosmos um and and he even in that dialogue right at the beginning he specified that this is only a probable account it's not uh we can't have knowledge of the the formation of the cosmos we can only come up with a probable account um so he already sort of um qualifies his account of the origin of entities that participate in the forms um uh and then again in the republic there's this um image of uh, how the form of the good is like the sun and, and so on, uh, which again is a, a kind of um, metaphorical account and not uh, a kind of um, theory of the participation of, of entities in the forms. Uh, so this is something that remains obscure in Plato, uh, whereas for Aristotle, the um, uh, coming to have a form or an entity coming to realize its form is sort of the core of what uh, that form is. The form is precisely what um, makes it the case that the acorn becomes a tr uh, an oak tree. Um, uh, so that's basically, that's the basic role of a form for Aristotle. Um, so it, uh, it's in this sense that the uh, ontogenesis is um, present as something, as a phenomenon to be explained in Aristotle, even if Simonon doesn't think that that explanation is a, a satisfying one yeah i was i was thinking in in light of the the way that he associates plato with the thought of the group as first in aristotle with the thought of the individual as first um that maybe plato would be the thinker of phylogenesis if i understand that term correctly to mean sort of the genesis of the like the taxon um or the the group above the individual level. But yeah, in any case, it seems like this, this distinction between Plato and Aristotle is very similar to his distinction between psychology and sociology with the thought of the group and then 
the difficulty of explaining the individual and vice versa and sociology and psychology respectively. Yes, and that would make sense as well when, when we think about the um, sort of initial comments in this text about um, the, the desire to develop an axiomatics for human science that would um, sort of overcome the split or the division between different fields like psychology and, and sociology without having recourse to some sort of intermediate field like psychosociology or social psychology or whichever sort of combination we want to um, make of those terms. Um, so yeah, the this opposition between Plato and Aristotle is um, uh, is definitely connected to this opposition between um, the sociological perspective, uh, where we start from the group and then have to sort of uh, figure out how to explain the individual, uh, and then the psychological perspective, where we start from the individual and have to sort of um, come up with an explanation of how the these individuals are incorporated into a group. Um, so yeah, th those are definitely connected problems. Uh, kind of, it's a little bit confusing. Like uh, when Simon Dong explained like uh, the acorn part, the child grows because it turns towards the adult, and the acorn contains the virtual essence of the oak. Question is that then what about okay then acorn contains virtual essence of the oak, just only the uh, virtual essence of the oak, or what about then the oak? Would they have the virtual essence of what? Um, I I think uh, this kind of question could uh, have to do with uh, the uh, the previous part. What it explains is like Aristotle uh, thinks um, uh, what's that? It represents the inverse tendency, the initial choice of individual. So what kind of like as far as I understand, um, Plato thinks. Uh, um, individual represents group, and the group represents some other bigger, uh, larger group, something like that. So, question here is when, for example, acorn something um, includes some virtual essence of something, then that is limits to what? Just the oak, or I mean, in Plato, Platonic, Plato's sense that it should be. Um, the essence of the one, but in the case of Aristotle, there's like limited to what? What the essence of what? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. Um, my understanding, and my my Aristotle is a little bit rusty, but um, my understanding is that there's no um, sort of further. So the the essence of an individual being um, is a, a kind of um, particularity in the sense that it doesn't refer to anything beyond itself it um mm. so the oak tree as an individual being is a uh, is something that um has a, a kind of self-contained nature it doesn't point beyond itself um whereas the acorn um is something that is incomplete in the sense that it points beyond itself towards the adult oak tree that it, it's um tending toward uh and then something like a city uh, that's made up of many individuals is not uh, itself an individual. It doesn't have an essence in the proper sense of the term. Uh, so uh, an individual human being has an essence, um, but a city does not have an essence. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, for Aristotle, there's a, a sort of inherent pluralism in the sense that there's a the world is made up of many different entities that have individual um, essences. Um, but there's no uh, there's no sort of um, uh, universal 
essence that all of those entities uh, participate in or or contribute towards or something like that. Uh, okay, in this in that sense, then a car a current is just a process of uh, uh, becoming like uh, to become um, the oak. So the oak is kind of like complete the version of uh, not complete version actually. Like anyhow, the the process of becoming. And then each becoming is like uh, constitutes uh, multiplicity of group. Can I understand that way? Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I would want to say that the um, the acorn is a becoming. I think what Aristotle would say is that the acorn undergoes becoming to become the adult oak tree. Um, hmm. So the the acorn itself is something that exists. It has a, a certain um, structure and composition and so on, but Inherent in that acorn is the tendency towards the oak tree, the um, the tendency, the the sort of impulse to become an adult oak tree. Um, um, so in that sense, the acorn um, exists. It, it is something that that exists now, but it also has this uh, tendency to become something else, something uh, uh, sort of perfect or or completed uh, in a way that the acorn is not completed. Um, so, yeah, I think that's how I would um, try to understand that distinction. Uh, so, just, uh, thank you. Regarding what uh, your explanation, the the the, the word tendency tendency um, that uh, had to do the, like the vector of movement, as far as I understand. When the in a way, like a tendency sounds like uh, everything is destined, like a pre predestined, but at the same time, if I understand like Aristotle theory, the tendency is not destined; it's fixed at all. It can it can change, right? Like uh, by the interaction with milieu, right? It, it it's not the fixed tendency, something like that, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's right. So Aristotle is not a determinist. Um, he thinks so. There's definitely so uh, an entity has a tendency towards a certain form uh, to realize a certain form. Uh, like the oak tree um, is the the sort of end point that the acorn tends towards, but um, in uh, in actuality, um, most acorns don't end up becoming oak trees. They they might sprout uh, as a seedling, and then the seedling gets eaten by something else, or um, you know doesn't get enough water and dies, or whatever. Um, most acorns don't end up becoming oak trees. Uh, so there's no sort of pre-programmed. Um, um, destiny for this acorn. Uh, the acorn has to find, has to um, end up in the right environment that allows it to develop into an oak tree, and uh, it, its own sort of contingent life history will be um, incorporated into its structure as an oak tree. Uh, and so, likewise, um, uh, the human child who um, has a, a certain uh, form that it has a tendency to realize, um, it still has to be. Uh, it has to the human child has to um, live in a city with um, uh, a good set of laws, and it has to be raised and educated into um, becoming a, a a perfect adult human or a, a complete adult human. Um, so the human child has to um, grow up in a particular environment with particular kind of influences on on it to realize its form. Uh, and so uh, again, there's no sort of um, predestination uh, that the human child will, in fact, realize that form. Uh, things can go wrong, and uh, 
the human child might become a, a bad example of a person as opposed to a, a good example of a person. Yeah, okay, thank you. Right. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next bit here. Um, so we are at uh, the bottom of, of 681. Uh, it seems that the lo long development. Uh, so if someone else would like to read from there. Yeah, I can read. Uh, it seems that the long development. That's where we are, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It seems the long development of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance did not find a perfect cor correlation, a veritable metaxu. A milieu or middle ground that could completely unite the archetypal form and the hylomorphic form. There are certainly various doctrines that merit specific interest, like, for example, that of Giordano Bruno, who identifies the different types of causes and who, by way of a rather Aristotelian vocabulary, perhaps makes it possible to attempt to synthesize the archetypal form in the Aristotelian form. Uh, nevertheless, he lacked a certain key in the analysis of processes of interaction, a notion that can be taken as a paradigm. And this notion only appeared at the end of the 19th century with Gestaltist psychology. This notion is that of field. The notion of field is a gift presented to the human sciences by the natural sciences. It establishes a reciprocity of ontological statuses and of operative modalities between the element and the whole. Indeed, in a field, whether it be electrical, electromagnetic, gravitational, or any kind whatsoever, the element possesses two statuses and fulfills two functions. One, to receive the influence of the field and submit to the forces of the field. It is in a certain point of the gradient by which the distribution of the field can be represented. Two, to intervene creatively and actively in the field by modifying the lines of the field's force and the distribution of the gradient. The gradient of a field cannot be defined without defining what there is in a specific point. Let's take the example of a magnetic field. If we arrange a magnet here, another magnet at the back of the room, and another magnet in a corner, they are all oriented in a definitive way and possess measurable magnetic masses. A certain magnetic field immediately exists as a result of the interaction of the fields of these three magnets. Now let's take a piece of soft iron from outside, previously heated to a temperature higher than that of the Curie temperature, and therefore not magnetized. That piece of steel does not possess this selective mode of existence that is characterized by the existence of poles. And yet, the moment we place it in the field, it takes on an existence with respect to the field. It is magnetized. It is magnetized according to the presence of three mag the three magnets. But the moment that it is magnetized and due to the very fact that it is magnetized, it reacts on the structure of this field and becomes a citizen of the Republic of the Whole, as if it were a itself a creative magnet of this field. Such is the reciprocity between the function of the totality and the function of the element within the field. The definition of the mode of interaction characteristic of the field constitutes a veritable conceptual discovery. Maybe I'll stop there because then we go into Descartes. But this is really interesting because this is, uh, and I, maybe I'm just not remembering well, but I don't remember uh, in volume one, Simondon ever explicitly talking about uh, psychic and collective individuation in terms of uh, magnetic fields or other kinds of fields. But this, the point seems to be that this is the paradigm that he's looking for because the, it's um, this, I guess, mode of relation in which by becoming a part of the field that determines the 
object within the field, that object at the same time, um, as he puts it, intervenes creatively and actively in that field. So just like, you know, being a psychic individual, you are having psychic individuality, there really isn't a question of how to, you know, then integrate you into the group, because by virtue of being a psychic individual, you are already collective, in a sense. Yeah, I think he did, um, I'm trying to remember where, I think he did talk about this analogy of the field concept um, in volume one. I'd have to sort of look it up again. But um, yeah, he takes this field concept to be um, uh, sort of the the key conceptual creation of the 19th century in science. Uh, Of course, there's many, um, you know, scientific developments, uh, thermodynamics, uh, Darwinian evolution, etc., all these things that appear in 19th century science, but he, th- he thinks that these are not um, sort of the uh, instances of the creative production of a new concept in the way that the concept of a field is. Um, and um, so, yeah, but it's precisely this reciprocity of the element and the whole that characterizes the field, the field concept. Um, so every um, uh, entity contained in a field um, contributes to the generation of that field at the same time as it's influenced by that field as a whole. Uh, so there's a, an immediate reciprocity of the whole and the element in the field. Um, and um, so this is a completely different um, sort of conceptual model for understanding the integration of an element into a whole uh, compared to like the platonic model of the, the analogy between the city and the individual or the Aristotelian model of um, the the various individuals coming together by convention. Uh, And so, um, yeah, I think you're right to say that um, Simon Don wants to use this model, this conceptual model of the field to understand the relation between the individual and the group um, at the level of psychical and collective individuation um, that we we are... um, it's not the it's not the case that we first are individuals, uh, psychical individuals who then form a group, or conversely that we are first part of a group and then um, you know somehow become individuals out of that group. Uh, it's that the group and the individual are sort of um, reciprocal to each other in the same way that the magnet and the magnetic field are. Um, so I think that's. Um, the conceptual model that Simon Don wants to use for understanding that group individual relationship in the psychical and collective um, forms of individuation. I think I mentioned this when we were talking about volume one, but it's kind of remarkable how close this is to uh, T.S. Eliot's conception of uh, how poetry works um, in his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, where he conceives of the new poet as immediately becoming part of the, I guess, the canon of great poets and effecting a reciprocal determination so that the, the group of existing poets is immediately transformed as soon as the, the new poet becomes a great poet. It's a pretty cool uh, parallel with Simon Don and the collective. Yeah, I remember you bringing that up. Um, uh, so I don't know uh, Elliot myself, um, but um, it, it calls to mind um, the the famous uh, Borges um, story about Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote, where the uh, 
um, a 20th century um, Argentinian writer decides he's going to rewrite Don Quixote. And uh, um, of course, it has a completely different meaning to write Don Quixote as a 20th century Argentinian than it did as a 16th century Spaniard. Um, and so every um, line or every paragraph has a, a completely different meaning, even though it's identical to the original one. Um, so, yeah, I think we can likewise see the, um, yeah, the uh, introduction of a new um, element into uh, an artistic tradition or, uh, or psychical life in general um, as um, sort of restructuring the whole picture of that um, uh, artistic tradition or of psychical life. And uh, um, yeah, so there's this sort of uh, immediate reciprocity between the element, this new element that appears in the field and then the uh, structure of the field as a whole. Uh, just a quick question. I, I don't know um, if anyone knows this, but the this is the second time he's talked about metals heated higher than the Curie point. The first was that reference to um, like reference to uh, I think he was talking about society versus community, or one of those distinctions he makes in this volume, um, where he compares the, I think, more object-oriented, I think he has something like engineers in mind, um, you know, a group of individuals to uh, metals that have been heated above the Curie temperature. Does that just, does it just demagnetize the uh, metal that is magnetized before being heated up? I'm going to put the Wikipedia article in the chat here. We can take a look at that later. Um, I Okay, thanks. I... Um... Yeah, I'm not like super familiar with exactly what the Curie temperature does, but my sort of basic understanding is that um, there. So if you take a piece of iron at like room temperature and put it in a magnetic field, then the iron um, takes on um, uh, a sort of um, it takes on a magnetic uh, orientation uh, on the basis of that field. But then as soon as you remove the iron from that field or remove the magnets, um, surrounding the iron, um, then the magnet loses its its magnetic orientation. Uh, the iron will sort of return to a random configuration of magnetic um, uh, of magnetic field. Whereas if you um, um, if you uh, heat the the iron above the Curie temperature and then apply the magnetic field, then it uh, and then allow it to cool. Um, uh, in the presence of this magnetic field, then the iron retains its magnetic um, orientation, so that um, the the iron itself is now a magnet um, and is capable of creating its own magnetic field, as opposed to sort of um, passively um, uh, receiving a magnetic field. Um, so I think that's how it works. But again, I'm not um, sort of an expert on this topic. Um, but yeah, we can. Check out the Wikipedia article afterwards. Thanks. That's that's interesting, and in, in light of that earlier point about ethics as well. Um, okay, um, let's continue uh, with the bit about Descartes here. Um, so, if someone else would like to read from uh, before this discovery, uh, I will. Uh, from before the discovery, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Before this discovery. Descartes started for certain mechanical complications, which are a credit to his creative genius, but um, which do not lead to the def def uh, definitive 
elucidation of phenomena so as to represent influences as a distance uh, via processes of action by contact. To explain how a magnet attracts another magnetic mass, there's a constraint to imagine tendrils of a subtle matter. Originating in the pulse of the magnet, these tendrils would twist around one another, pulling together, pushing apart, something that, even at the hypothetical and formal level, is not a very easy to imagine. If one of the directions of rotation brings the pulse closer, uh, Closer, closer. The movement of the one of the magnets in the in the opposite direction should merely hold action at a distance and not create the repulsive action typically displayed in experiments. Descartes was unable to find a satisfactory schema for processes of interaction because he lacked the notion of field. He made the subtle matter uh, responsible for all the characteristics attributed to fields today, and yet this notion a field has seen quite remarkable development in the 19th century. At the end of the 18th century, at the beginning of the 19th century, the magnetic field and the electric uh, field was discovered and uh, analyzed. Afterwards, the interaction between currents and fields were discovered, Arago, Ampere, and then circa 1864, the electromagnetic uh, theory of light appeared. It defines a new type of field. The electromagnetic field, which is not just a field that could be called a static, like the previous fields, but is a field that involves the propagation of energy and of force between the element and the whole, a much more remarkable and more richly exemplary reciprocity by defining a dynamic coupling between elements. If we position an electromagnetic oscillator kept with an antenna here, such that it radiates a field around it, and if we put at the back of the room, or much farther away, another oscillator of the same type, and if the two oscillators have the same frequency, the second will enter into resonance with the first, whereas if they do not share the same frequency, they will not enter into resonance. We'll sometimes have a blurred resonance, sometimes an acute resonance, and the quantity of energy exchanged between the oscillators will be a function of their similarity in frequency, and not just a function of their distance and the importance of their couplers. Here, we see the much more refined processes of interaction between the parts through the intermediary of the whole, in which selective exchanges intervene. This is no doubt why the notion of field at the end of the 19th century possessed a fairly particular pregnancy and entered into the world of human sciences, almost through a sort of breaking and entering. It was introduced by philosophers who mediated on the ancient notions of interactions, interaction and the processes of relation between matter and form. We should not forget that it was Brentano, who was the precursor of the Gestalt theory, and who inspired the work of von Ehrenfels, specifically his own the qualities of form, Later, Queller, Kofka, and all the, all the other Gestalt theorists increasingly utilized the notion of field. It could be said it is the fundamental notion for the level of the latest development, and this doctrine has received an Kurt Ruhn, who founded the theory of social and psycho psychosocial exchanges with his dynamic interpretation of a hodological and the topological universe. Continue? Uh, let's stop here, actually. Oh, okay. Great. Um, yeah, so the first bit in this passage is the um, 
sort of criticism of Descartes, um, and we've seen this before, I, I believe, in other parts of the of the book. Um, so Descartes had this um, theory of magnetism that had to do with um, these sort of vortices or or whirlpools of subtle matter. So um, a magnet would emit um, particles of subtle matter uh, that would swirl around and and sort of return at the other pool in um, in this sort of giant whirlpool. Um, but uh, uh, Simon Don points out that this um, sort of model of magnetism um, uh, doesn't account for the fact of repulsion um, of magnets. So if you um, if you turn the magnet around and then approach uh, another uh, the same pool, uh, like a north pole to another north pole, then they repel each other. Um, so you can you can either account for for repulsion or um, attraction in terms of your um, uh, vortices of subtle matter, but you can't account for both at the same time. Uh, that's the, the fundamental issue. Um, so Descartes' theory doesn't really work. Um, and Simon Dole makes the, I think, um, correct comment here that Descartes uses his um, notion of subtle matter to account for basically everything that we later would uh, understand in terms of fields. So light is a, a, a kind of subtle matter uh, magnetism, all, all these different phenomena that we understand in terms of fields today are, um, for Descartes, are represented in terms of operations of the subtle matter. Um, um, but he, so he doesn't have the concept of a field, and so he has to come up with these sort of um, complicated mechanical explanations of phenomena to um, sort of fill in the place of the field concept. Uh, and then Simon Dong very quickly goes through the development of the notion of a field in the 19th century, um, and he um, he emphasizes the notion of the electromagnetic field in the second half of the 19th century, um, in particular because it has this property of dynamic coupling in the sense that um, the relationship between two um, elements in a field has to do not only with the distance between those elements, but also with the um, frequency of each of those elements. So if you have two oscillators um, that are at the same frequency, they will enter into resonance with each other, um, whereas oscillators at different frequencies will not enter into resonance with each other. Um, and so um, there's a, what he calls here a selective exchange. So the, the, the two oscillators sort of select out of all the different um, electromagnetic radiation uh, in, uh, surrounding them, they kind of, they select the um, uh, parts of that electromagnetic radiation or the, the spectrum of electromagnetic radiation that is at the same frequency um, uh, as their uh, uh, resonating frequency. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's, it's this notion of a, of a dynamic coupling with this um, selective exchange that he thinks is, is especially um, important in 19th century physics. And then he, he just mentions briefly um, how the Gestalt theorists at the end of the 19th century sort of take up this concept and, and how it becomes more and more uh, central to later Gestalt theorists. And so uh, then he ends with um, Kurt Leven, who um, develops this whole account of uh, um, the social and psychosocial world of human beings in terms of a, a sort of topological um, field orientation. So they're like your experience of the world would be structured in terms of, you know, uh, 
points that are attractive and points that are repulsive um, in, in such a way that you, you know, head towards the attractive points and move away from the repulsive ones and so on. Um, uh, so this is a sort of field conception of human action and human uh, experience. Um, so it, it's it's centered on the notion of the field. It becomes the, the notion of the field becomes more and more central to psychology as the Gestalt school um, progresses. Do you think that the in the example of the oscillators that the mechanism that he's interested in is is selective exchange, as you um, just highlighted, uh, and the fact that that's that can be related to like information theory. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. It could be the case that he's um, this selected exchange is interesting to him because, um, yeah, because of the connection with information theory. Um, I think maybe at a more basic level, it has to do with the way that um, the uh, the influence of a field on something like an oscillator depends on the nature of that oscillator itself. So the field is not just a sort of um, uh, I guess universally operating influence on all of the entities that happen to um, be in the the vicinity of that field. Um, it uh, so it, entities sort of select which fields they will be influenced by in terms of their uh, composition or their their nature. Um, and so, likewise, if we want to extend this um, notion of a field to psychological uh, domain to the psychological domain, um, we can think of um, uh, and so this comes a little bit later than Simon Don is writing about, but um, there's the notion of affordances that James Gibson um, comes comes up with in the 60s, um, where he talks about how different entities, different animals in particular, um, experience the world in terms of different properties. Uh, so um, like a chair for a human being has the affordance of being something you can sit on. It has a, like sitability, I guess you could say. Whereas to a dog, the chair is just an obstacle. Um, uh, so it, it doesn't have the affordance of sitability. Um, and uh, um, so different entity, different animals um, uh, sort of select which properties of the world they will be receptive to, <clears throat> receptive to and um, capable of experiencing. Um, and uh, in, I think this is the, the sort of the key notion or the key... Um, uh, value of this um, notion of selective exchange that Simon Don wants to highlight here. Thanks. That's really interesting. So I I also think that's interesting too because if it applies to kind of everyday everyday experiences like um, thinking thinking like the concept of humor like um, humor so like a full humor is like in English literature or like a chemistry between people or some kind of particular character of a person uh, reacts or acts to particular situations, like um, some kinds of situations or um, surroundings or atmosphere doesn't function in the all the same way to everybody. So it has to the inherent inherent potentials or virtual potentials of each. If if it is a human being, like each person, like. And then the particular, uh, particular like um, surroundings, milieu, uh, gives some kind of energy or kind of like a stimulates, poke some, uh, causes some actions 
from the being. That's what it what it says, right? And then that's the reason, like, uh, the idea field uh, was necessary. Otherwise, like, uh, individual to the the whole, there are two big discrepancies. So <clears throat> the um at the at the time, like, thinkers need some kind of medium medium kind of a concept like a field. Otherwise, like, it can't be explained per- properly. So I I thought that way. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of um, sort of making this notion concrete. Um, so you could think about, um, yeah, like the atmosphere of a room, um, you know, when when there's a particular conversation going on, um, you know, the, the human participants in that conversation might have a, a certain sense of what that atmosphere is like. Um, uh, but then your dog, who, who is also in the room, would have a maybe... Um, a different sense of the atmosphere. Um, you know, dogs can, of course, recognize human emotional states, and um, um, so they might be able to determine that people are angry or or nervous or whatever. Um, but uh, the dog is going to obviously recognize that atmosphere in a very different way than the humans will. So the this, if we think of the atmosphere of the room or the you know vibe or whatever term you want to use as like a um, a kind of psychological field. Um, then each uh, entity that finds itself in that field will um, sort of react to different aspects of that field or will um, uh, have a different um, selection of, of aspects of that field. So, you know, the dog and the human, of course, would have very different responses, um, but then each individual human would potentially have different responses as well. Um, and then, you know, uh, the chair in the room, of course, would have no response whatsoever to the atmosphere. Um, uh, so um, each entity sort of filters through all the different fields that surround it and uh, selects the ones that will influence it. Yeah, right. Thank you. Right. Okay. So let's. Uh, so, sorry. To... Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry. Sure. One yeah. more quick question. Here, uh, field is just only like we can think of like the on the earth, right? It has to do the physics, like. Um, Kind of like a Newton, Newton's like a not not going too far to like Einstein. I mean the quantum physics or the Einstein's physics, something like that. The basic um classical classical physics like by Newton. So that kind of conditions make a this particular phenomenon of field, electromagnetic field, or something like that. Right under that conditions, we can think of this kind of thing, right? I don't think we need to limit this notion of field to um, a Newtonian picture. Um, I think the, um, yeah, so in the notion of, uh, so in uh, relativity, for example, the um, gravitational field, uh, in general relativity, the gravitational field is is the sort of central concept. Um, the, um, yeah, there's the um, notion of um, filling up, so space itself is, um, space and time are uh, sort of results of the um, uh, formation of that field. Um, so you, instead of having like an empty, in Newtonian physics, you have a, an empty space, an empty time in which entities sort of move around and, you know, do their thing. Um, but um, in uh, general relativity, we instead have um, the, the field itself is space and time. Uh, so the uh, and then the based on the um, density of the field at particular points, the space and time have different curvatures at different points. Um, so this is um, 
I think a a, a more radical kind of field picture um, than the uh, uh, classical picture in which you have space and time as sort of a container in which various fields operate. Um, so yeah, so in, in in general relativity, instead it's the fields themselves that make up space and time. Yeah, all right, that helps. Thank you. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so I can read um, this passage. However, Gestalt theory, which has emerged with the application of the notion of field, refuses both the empiricist vision and the idealist vision of form laid out by Aristotle and Plato. It replaces them with an instantaneous geneticism. Perception is the grasping of a configuration of the perceptive field. There is a field, the perceptive field, the various elements that are found in the field and constitute it. This is the characteristic twofold situation of the field, are in interaction, like magnets in a magnetic field. It is not just perception, but also action that is the grasping and realization of a configuration. It suffices to extend the notion of field. If an exterior field exists, a phenomenal field in the process of perception, why not consider the subject as being in the field and therefore a field reality? A total field would exist that would be subdivided into two subsets, the subject field and the object field. Action would be the discovery of a structure, a configuration common to the exterior field and the interior field. But this is precisely where the axiomatic insufficiency of Gestalt theory appears. Structure is envisioned as the result of a state of equilibrium. Without this insufficiency, it could be thought that the archetypal form and the, the hylomorphic form are joined together in Gestalt theory. The archetypal form is the whole, the Ganzheit. The hylomorphic form would be all the complement, the elementary structures in correlation with each other, with one another, since there would consequently be an organization spanning the very matter of the fields. The elementary aspect, the organization of subsets, and the global organization of the whole would be accounted for. But in order to account for this structure, which is a configuration, Gestalt theorists resort to the notion of equilibrium. Why is there a structure that is a structure of the whole? Why is this structure of the whole really participable by each of the parts? Because it is the good form, the best form. The best form is a form that possesses two aspects. One, it is a form that envelops the most elements possible and constitutes best what could be called the tendency of each of the subsets to progress. Two, it is the most pregnant, i.e. according to Gestalt theorists, it is the most stable, that which does not let itself dissociate, that which is imposed. And the Gestalt theorists invoke an analogy between the physical world and the psychical world, an analogy that leads them to the postulate of isomorphism, which is the foundation for a theory of knowledge. Studying morphogenesis in the physical world, they show that there are genesis of form and that there is a possible experimental morphology. These forms, for example, are forms of the distribution of an electrical field around a conductive body. Let's suppose that a conductive body, like, for example, this microphone, if it weren't plugged in, is placed on insulated blocks. If an amber or glass rod is electrified, and if the electrical charge of the rod is transmitted to the conductive body, it is distributed on the surface of the conductor according to known laws. Thus, the field will be stronger around certain points. If a new charge of electricity is contributed, it will be distributed in the same way. The quantity increases, but the form remains the same. There would thus be a certain constancy of forms that only depends on the relation between all the elements and remains independent of any quantitative condition. Von Ehrenfels showed that within a melody, the total aspect of the melody is changed much more noticeably by modifying a single note than by raising or lowering the, the notes by an octave. But in our opinion, there is a contradiction between the notion of stable equilibrium, which would be the foundation of the pregnancy of forms, and the other notion, that of good form. It seems very difficult to say that a form is good because it is the most probable. And here already a theory of information begins to take shape. Um, actually, I think I'll stop here. Um, uh, yeah, so we're going to get into uh, some information theory stuff in a second. Um, but yeah, let's stop and discuss this bit first. Um, 
So this is a um, sort of familiar criticism that we've seen Simon Dong um, uh, make in earlier passages in volume one of um, Gestalt theory. Uh, and, and so he, he argues here that Gestalt theory is sort of um, illegitimately identifying the good form with the um, uh, most probable form or the lowest state of energy or, or the stable equilibrium. Whereas, uh, as we'll see in a little bit, uh, for Simondon, we need to understand good form in terms of metastable equilibrium. And, and so the, the general sort of argument for this is that um, a stable equilibrium is one in which there's no more possible transformation. Um, so like um, the sort of standard example is if you have a, a ball at the top of a hill uh, uh, and then you, know, pu you push it and it rolls down the hill, then at the bottom of the hill, the ball is in a stable equilibrium. It has no more possible transformation. Uh, um, whereas the ball, when it's at the top of the hill, when it uh, uh, is just resting at the top of the hill, it's in a metastable state because it can still undergo further transformation and roll down the hill. Um, so uh, this stable equilibrium state at the bottom of the hill is, uh, it's, is not really identifiable with um, a good form because it's something that uh, doesn't contain any potentials for further transformation. Uh, for Simon Don, we, we need to understand good form in terms of the potential for further transformation. Uh, and so in, in, we have to understand it in terms of metastable equilibrium instead. Uh, and we'll see more about that in uh, the next little bit. So just <clears throat> I'm kind of trying to follow the argument here in, in these last few pages, but it seems like he we had the digression through the notion of these various field theories in, you know, like magnetic fields and electromagnetic fields, because he thinks that this is useful for thinking perception, which is what Gestalt theory does. It thinks a, a perceptive field, which includes the subject, presumably the subject reciprocally determines the field the way that the magnet does in the uh, one of the previous examples. So he likes this idea of a perceptive field, but has this problem with conceiving of the form that individuates out of the field as stable as opposed to metastable. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, if you think of like a perceptive situation, for example, um, uh, so you, you're in a room uh, and there's, um, I don't know, an apple on the table, uh, in front of you, um, you you know this situation is one that is structured in uh, you know you you perceive the apple as an object on the background of the table. Um, you don't just perceive a bunch of you know color spots or whatever. Uh, you 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 know have a, a structured perception of the situation. So there's the the situation the perceptual um, situation is one in which there is a, a kind of field structure. Um, each element in that perceptual situation um, uh, contributes to the whole um, image or the whole perceptual situation. Uh, and then likewise, each uh, the whole image um, sort of determines the role of each uh, element of that perceptual situation um, in, the, in the field. Um, but to understand this um, perceptual field in terms of the equilibrium state, the uh, stable equilibrium, would mean that the um, the 
perceptual field would be one in which there would be no more possibility for a transformation or no more potentials, whereas our experience of this perceptual field of the apple on the table is one in which we um, sort of grasp the capacity for action, the capacity to pick up the apple and eat it or, you know, throw it in the garbage or whatever um, you can in, in this perceptual field, you ha- you sort of experience the capacity for action. You you have the capacity to um, manipulate the objects in this field and do things with them and make them undergo transformations, um, which the the notion of stable equilibrium kind of um, leaves out this whole capacity for action that we experience in the perceptual field. Uh, so um, it's in this sense that I think he takes it that... Um, this notion of stable equilibrium is insufficient to um, to grasp our experience of uh, of the world, our, our sort of um, the way that the subject is incorporated into the perceptual field. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, this so this goes back to the criticism of Gestalt theory in Volume One, where he says that he criticizes the notion of good form with the example of the. Um, the child seeing the like the foot of the tiger, for instance, um, as an example of a perception that is very stable uh, or that is identifiable, I guess, even though it is clearly not um, good form in the Gestalt theory sense. And the reason this can be explained is because uh, it's the tension of the perceptual field, which includes the subject, that allows the subject to perceive rather than a uh, kind of neutral matching up of objects into um, the Gestalt notion of, of good forms like circles and triangles and stuff. Yeah, I think that is, um, it's a definitely a related criticism, but I think it's a, maybe a slightly more complicated one. So he, he, um, he yeah, so in Gestalt psychology, they, they sort of focus on, yeah, these sort of simple forms like the circle, and the square and the triangle, um, because these have uh, sort of basic physical properties like the a circle or a sphere is the minimal um, surface area that encloses a volume. Um, so this is why, for example, uh, bubbles will form into spheres. Um, it's just uh, a sort of minimization of surface tension um, that produces um, the spherical shape of a bubble. And um, the Gestalt theorists, or some of them at least, um, model the process of um, psychological um, uh, image formation or, or uh, the, uh, the process of coming to grasp a, a, a form in the psych- psychical field or perceptive field um, as uh, a similar type of minimization problem of you know, minimizing a certain quantity, which will result in these uh, very stable, um, simple forms like the circle and the square and so on. Um, but what Simon Don points out in that passage in volume one is that um, there are lots of forms like a human face or the, you know, the body of an animal that um, are good forms in the sense that they're um, uh, easy to grasp. And we, we have a, um, a sort of um, attraction to them. Um, uh, we, we can perceive a face even if it's covered by lines or a mask or, um, you know, various other um, uh, you know, seen through fog or whatever, like we, 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 um, see the face easily, even if it's partly covered, um, 
uh, in the same way that we can see a triangle that's partly covered or whatever. Uh, and um, this, uh, but a human face is not a, a simple geometrical figure. It's not um, the result of, uh, you know, a minimization of a, a single quantity like the um, the spherical shape of a bubble. Um, it's, uh, it's a very complicated shape. Um, and, you know, like anyone who's tried to draw a human face will recognize that it's it's very difficult to um, capture that shape properly. Um, and uh, um, so Simondo takes this fact to be um, an argument against the um, identification of the good form with the uh, simple form, the uh, the minimization of a quantity and the stable equilibrium. So he takes it that good form involves, as you said, this this tension between the subject and the object, um, or between the subject and the um, perceptive field. Uh, and um, we can also tie this in, I think, with this notion of selective uh, exchanges. So um, the human child has a, a sort of um, um, a capacity to grasp the form of the animal, as, you know, this end is the head and this end is the tail, and, you know, these are the legs and so on. Um, the human child has a capacity to grasp the form of this animal, even seeing it for the first time, um, and and has a can sort of map the animal body onto its own body uh, and understand have a, a sort of um, corporeal understanding of what it would be like to walk on four legs, for example. Um, and uh, yeah, so this this is um, again a, a sort of selective. Um, uh, so it's not every entity that the child sees that it can grasp in this way, but uh, animals in particular have this um, sort of attractive character for um, human children um, that, you know, they can grasp the form of this animal, um, you know, by means of this corporeal understanding. So... Um, Thank you. That's helpful. Uh, sorry, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Bye. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, Firstly, like, uh, when I saw the word, the good form, the vessel form, I was wondering, like, uh, it goes back to the, the uh, ideal form of Plato. Uh, apparently, it is not, but uh, in a way, I was wondering. And, and then now, I, by your explanation, I, I'm wondering another thing, like, um, it's kind of like, a, in terms of good form, vessel form, compared to equilibrium, is that the differences between the uh, subjective subjective perception and then object objective perception? What I mean is like uh, equilibrium is like judged measured by by outside, but the uh, good form or best form is very subjective. So it's kind of like uh, uh, by the just like a conscious of uh, uh, just realized by the um, the individual being inside something like that, and then. If I think of uh, the painting of Picasso, like the when we think of the early early Picasso, like he uh, represented like the the reality, like from the the when he was a teenager, it's kind of like a dancing, and it just represented it just represented as reality stuff. But the the later Picasso, like he just like emphasized a particular side he wanted to just focus on, so it makes it a singularity. Likewise. Maybe in case theory, best form goes like that. Like some particular part is like imposed by the uh, individual singularity. Like so, that has to do different uh, equilibrium 
which is like uh, measured by like physically or, or measured by the uh, outside like uh, criteria something like that. Um, hmm. I think I would want to um, separate this from the notion of uh, subjective and objective. Um, I think part of what Simon Dom finds appealing about this notion of uh, perceptual field is precisely that it it doesn't um, it doesn't require um, so as he says at the beginning of that section that we just read it it, it refuses both the empiricist vision and the idealist vision of form uh, so either the Aristotelian or the Platonic um, theory of form um, so the perceptive field is one in which the subject is uh, a part of the field and also um, contributes to that field. Uh, so each element in the field has this dual character of, of um, uh, you know, being subordinated to the influence of the field, but also in contributing to the formation of that field. Um, and so this is something that we should think of as neither objective nor subjective, um, because the subject is incorporated uh, in the field itself. Uh, so I think in that sense, yeah, we, we shouldn't think of the um, the field as being something subjective, um, but we can also think of the um, the uh, selective exchanges as as um, sort of um, I, don't, I don't want to. Yeah, I guess we can call it the subjective side of the um, of the field in the sense that each individual uh, entity that appears within that field will um, select the aspects of the field that um, that uh, are relevant to it or that um, it will have a it will interact with um, in the way that the uh, the oscillator only resonates with um, other oscillators at the same frequency. Um, so likewise, the human subject is receptive to, um, for example, electromagnetic radiation in a certain spectrum that we know as visible light, uh, but not to electromagnetic radiation at higher and lower frequencies. Um, so um, there are certain aspects of the field, um, and, but then uh, uh, a bee, for example, would be sensitive to ultraviolet light that we are not sensitive to. So um, each of us, each entity within that field, the, the bee and the human being, would respond to different aspects of the field. Um, and... Uh, um, it sort of selects um, which aspect of that field it will uh, receive. Uh, so in that sense, we can think of it as subjective. But I think the notion of subjective and objective is one that Simon Dom was trying to get away from in this context. Okay. So maybe like uh, the next part, maybe like more specify the, the differences between equilibrium and then the what's called best form as well. Right. Yeah. So the, the good form and best form... Um, the idea is that um, certain um, configurations of the field have this um, property of attraction or um, that the, the form of the field will tend to evolve towards a certain state. Um, and so like um, the sort of simple examples are like um, the way that you, uh, you can see a square, uh, even if it's partly hidden, you still see the square as a square. Um, and there are all kinds of optical illusions you can form where it, it looks like there's a square behind a circle, but really all it is is a, a set of broken lines. Um, there's no, like, it looks like a square behind a white circle, but the, the white circle is, is an optical illusion. 
um, or you know things like that. Um, um, or there's the uh, Kinesa triangles. Um, let me just uh, get a picture of that quickly. Um, um, but in general, you have these um, um, optical illusions that result from the fact that you. Um, um, sorry, that didn't copy the image. Let me do that quickly. Um, so here, if you see the image in the, that I just put in the chat, the, it says a Kinesa triangle. So you, it looks like there's a, well, because it's a gray background on Discord, it looks like a gray triangle over top of a, a black outline triangle, uh, and then also over top of these three circles. But really, there's no gray triangle. Um, it's just, there's just a set of lines that we perceive as um, having the form of a, a gray triangle. Um, and so this this gray triangle form is a is a good form in the sense that our perceptual apparatus tends to sort of land on this form, or, or um, our experience of the perceptual situation tends to resolve on this form. Um, and um, uh, but this is a property. This isn't a, a sort of subjective property in the sense that it's. Um, uh, something that is up to us to select. Uh, so it's not that we can choose to um, see the the triangle as a, or see the the gray triangle here. Um, it's it's a property of um, it's a relational property of the human perceptual system and the uh, configuration of the diagram on the screen. Um, so it's it's um, this relationship between our perceptual apparatus and the diagram that brings about the good form, uh, which is the perception of the gray triangle that doesn't really exist. No, no, thank you. Interesting. Um, okay, so let's, I think we have time for probably one or two more passages. So let's go on to the next one. Um, so where did I stop? Um, yeah, I think I, I read on page 685, I read, what does it mean to say a, a form is a, a good form because it is the most probable? Uh, so let's go on from there. Let's suppose that we took this room. Uh, if someone else would like to read from there. I would love to if you give me like 30 seconds to hook up to the machine. Uh, yeah, do, do you want, maybe you can read the next one after after that, uh, and then someone else can read this one. Oh, sure, yeah. If there's time for one more after this one too, that'd be fine. Sure. Okay, okay great. Thanks. Um, Angus, did you okay. want to read this one? Yeah, I can read the giant hand. Uh, let's suppose we took this room and submitted it to a physical treatment that would shake it very violently in all directions at random, and then abandoned it as a closed system and left it to its own unique becoming. At the end of a century, one could have certainly obtained a definitive and very stable state of equilibrium in this isolated system, which means that everything that was hanging on the ceiling would have fallen to the ground. All the differences of potential, electrical, chemical, gravitational, would have given rise to the possible transformations. All the energies able to actualize would have, been, would have effectively been actualized. There would have been an increase in temperature, an increase in the degree of homogeneity, and whatever good forms there were would have been lost, i.e. living and thinking beings that have varied and coherent <laughs> motivations and representations. <clears throat> sources of action, and more generally, all the energetic reserves present here in all domains. A charged battery would run out of charge, the charged capacitors of the magnetic recorder would run out of charge, and all the chemical actions that can take place would have taken place between the electrolyte and the armatures. In other words, everything that can happen would have happened. There would be no 
further possible evolution for this room. It would be fully degraded, just like the potential energy in a grandfather clock whose weights are at the top of the case. When the weights are at the bottom of their trajectory, an irreversible process has taken place. And without an external intervention, the clock can no longer function. This state of non-functioning is stable, and it is also the most probable. In all domains, the most stable state is a state of death, i.e. a degraded state starting from which no transformation is possible without the intervention of an external energy to the degraded system. This is a state that could be called pulverulent and disordered. It does not contain any seed of becoming. It is not a good form. It is not significative. If this room could be treated as a closed system, a result would be obtained that would be quite analogous to what would be obtained if any other room or any other set of objects with the same volume were treated in the same way. Every treatment of this type, disorganizing, applied to a highly coherent and highly valorized ensemble rich in potentials would lead to similar results at the end of the loss of form. <clears throat> this path towards uh, homogeneous stability does not initiate the genesis of pregnant forms. It therefore seems that there is a confusion between the stability of form for the mind, its potential to establish attention and to remain in memory, which could be called the quality of a form, and on the other hand, the stability of physical states. Here there is a characteristic insufficiency in Gestalt theory, for a convergent evolution cannot explain a stability of form. It can only explain a stability of the state and not the superiority of a form, which consists in activity and radiation and the capacity to elucidate new domains. Here it is necessary to consider Plato's archetypal form to avoid this error, for the superiority of the good form is what gives it its pregnancy. Good form is instead the permanence of metastability permanence of a metastability. I think it's funny that Simon Don is kind of threatening to <laughs> shake the room full of uh, the participants for his talk, you know, and let it sit for a century so that all the potential energy uh, is exhausted in it. Um, but this seems to be kind of a recap of what we have already said about the difference between stability and metastability for Gestalt theory. Yeah, he is essentially saying, if we just pulverized everyone in this room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, of course, in that situation, so in this thought experiment where you just um, destroy everything in the room and then let it sit there for a century, um, every transformation that the, the room could have gone through, it would have gone through. So, And he outlines the different forms of... Um, uh, electrical, chemical, et cetera, all these potentials would have um, undergone their transformations and then there would be nothing left for the, for the room to, um, to uh, affect any further transformations. So it would be in a very stable state. Um, but this is precisely the opposite of what we think of as a good form. Uh, so it's a completely disordered state. It's uh, you know just piles of dust and debris and so on. Um, so... Uh, whereas the room before all this treatment um, was highly organized, you had, you know, certain, uh, you know, electrical apparatus and, uh, you know, chemical properties of the battery um, in the recorder. Uh, and of course, the living beings with all their intricate structure. Um, so this highly organized room um, is much less probable than the highly disorganized room at the end of the century. Um, so it's clear that this notion of uh, a good form doesn't coincide with the notion of the most probable form. Uh, and um, 
yeah, so that's that's sort of the the key takeaway of that um, passage, which I think is is pretty um, clear, uh, pretty straightforward. Okay, so let's go on to our last passage for today, sixty one. If you would like to read, uh, yeah, hold on, let me connect. I'm 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 mostly connected. Just one second. Okay, sorry. But maybe while we're waiting for that, I'll um, just mention um, so the last bit in, in this passage here, where where Simon Dong points back to Plato, is an interesting one because he thinks that we can. Um, Sort of correct the um, the uh, identification of good form and probable form by appealing to this notion of the um, asymmetry uh, that Plato identifies in the, in the notion of form. So we have to um, we uh, we have to sort of go back to the ancient notion of form in Plato to correct the um, the more contemporary notion of form in Gestalt psychology. So that's sort of the the reason why. Simon Dom started off by talking about Plato and Aristotle is that we we want to um, uh, you know use the, these ancient notions to um, correct our contemporary ones. Okay, I'm here, but oh, okay. So what uh, where what passage did you end up uh, finishing on last section? Uh, so we're at six eighty six, um, uh, and we're at the line. In other words, Gestalt psychology. Okay, perfect. Okay. In other words, Gestalt psychology has an exemplary value because it seeks to join the Aristotelian form and the Platonic form in order to interpret processes of interaction. But it has a fundamental flaw because it presents processes of degradation as processes of the genesis of a good form. Consequently, would it be possible to invoke a theory of information so as to enrich and correct the notion of form, such as it is presented by Gestalt theory? Would it be possible to appeal to the theory of Shannon, Fisher, Hartley, and Norbert Wiener? What is shared by the authors who founded information theory is that for them, information corresponds to the inverse of a probability. The information exchanged between two systems, between an emitter and a receiver, is null when the state of the object about which one must be informed is totally predictable or absolutely determined in advance. The information is null and it is not necessary to, trans to transmit a message when one is certain of the state of the object, so much so that there is no value in sending the message at all. If one sends a message, if one is seeking a message, this is because the state of the object is not known. Should I go on or? Yeah, let's continue uh, like another uh, couple paragraphs. Okay. Information theory is the starting point for a set of studies that have founded the notion of negative entropy or negentropy, showing that information corresponds to the inverse of the processes of degradation and that within the overall schema, information is not definable based on a single term, such as the source of the receiver, but it is definable based on the relation between the source and the receiver. The question to which information functionally responds is, what is the state of the source? One could say that the receiver poses the question, what is the state of the source? And information is what brings an answer to the receiver. This is why it is possible to present the quantity of information as log, with p indicating the probability of the state of the source. For secondary, albeit important reasons, we have taken the logarithms in base 2 so as to define information in Hartley's or in bits. In spite of this, we do not know if information theory could be applied directly for our purposes, or could allow us to grasp what makes a form a good form or a better form than another. Indeed, in, in information theory, one in fact considers quite legitimately in the technological domain where this theory has a functional role to play as fundamental the relation between an emitter and a receiver, which require a correlation such that information is that by which a certain system, the receiver, can be guided by another system, the emitter. It could be said that the goal of the passage of information is to tighten the correlation between the emitter and the receiver to bring this fu the functioning of the receiver closer to that of the emitter, such is the case, for example, of synchronization. 
Signals of synchronization are emitted to allow the receiver to synchronize with the emitter. Such a schema is suitable for a theory of apprenticeship, like the theory developed by Ombredain and Favarge, Favarge in their work dedicated to the study of labor. Information theory is built for this to enable the correlation between the emitter and the receiver in cases where this correlation must exist. But if one wanted to transpose it directly into the psychological and sociological domain, it would contain a paradox. As the correlation between the emitter and receiver becomes tighter, the quantity of information decreases. Thus, for example, in a totally realized apprenticeship, the operator merely requires a very small quantity of information from the emitter, i.e. from the object on which he works, from the machine he controls. The best form would therefore be one that requires the least quantity of information. This is not something that seems possible. We cannot accept information theory into the psychosocial domain without modification, because in this domain, it would be necessary to find something that allows us to qualify the best form as one that possesses the highest degree of information. And this cannot be done based on the negentropic schema, on probabilistic research. In other words, there would, be, there would need to be a non-probabilistic term added to information theory. Perhaps it would be possible, and this is the starting point for our personal thesis, that we would like to present now to speak of a quality of information or of attention of information. Uh, let's stop here um, because it's going to get into this new concept in the next bit. Um, right. Um, so yeah, this is the sort of other side of the equation, right? Is So um, um, Gestalt psychology was the one side um, and he's um, explained some of the uh, insufficiencies that he finds in Gestalt psychology. Um, and then the other side is information theory, um, and he takes it that, um, um, again, he thinks the information theory and, and Gestalt psychology as well are uh, important advances and um, part of the solution to the problem uh, of the um, developing an axiomatics for human science uh, as a whole, but he thinks they're insufficient uh, as they're currently articulated. Uh, and so in information theory, um, the information the quantity of information contained in a signal has to do with the degree of uncertainty of the message. So like the sort of simplest message you could transmit would be a, a, a simple yes or no or, or uh, a one bit message. So like you flip a coin and then you transmit a one if it's head, heads and then a zero if it's tails. Um, uh, this is sort of the simplest message. Um, but this message is only uh, only conveys any information if the receiver doesn't already know what the outcome of the coin flip is. Uh, so if you have a coin that always lands heads, then there's no point transmitting a message that um, the coin landed on heads. Uh, um, and so the uh, information content of the message is a, a function of the probability of the various states of the transmitter. Um, and so um, the sort of, uh, consequence of this notion, if we try to um, use it in human sciences, is that um, the uh, the degree of uncertainty is sort of the determining quantity, and um, the quantity of information decreases as the correlation between the emitter and receiver increases. So the more, um, the closer. Um, yeah, the, the, the best form on, on this conception would be one that requires the least amount of information and not the most amount of information. Um, and this is a sort of paradoxical um, result. So we think of like, say, a book, um, we think of a book, uh, a nonfiction book as being um, 
valuable insofar as it contains lots of information uh, in our sort of colloquial sense of that term, but in the um, uh, in the information theoretical sense, we are um, that book is only it, it contains lots of information only insofar as I as the reader have not yet received um, the information from the source. But then once I receive that information, then the book has no more information for me. Um, the book, uh, so the more I sort of already know the content of the book, the less information the book has for me. Um, and that's a sort of um, paradoxical, um, uh, I guess, understanding of information in relation to our sort of everyday understanding of information, where we would think that, say, a book um, would have uh, a lot of information or a high value of information um, if it's one that you can sort of return to and draw something from uh, uh, over many years. Um, uh, as opposed to something that you just sort of read once and absorb the information and then discard. Um, and so um, Simon Don is going to, and he just, uh, that's where we stopped, he's going to um, suggest that we need something uh, in addition to just the uncertainty of the source, we need a, a further um, element in our understanding of information. And he's going to call this uh, a quality of information or attention of information. And he's going to, um, explain what this term will consist in uh, in the rest of this text. Oh, and one uh, translation point that I'll mention here is uh, where it says apprenticeship in the translation, um, I think a better translation would just be learning. Um, the French is apprentissage. Um, so it could be it could be uh, apprenticeship in like the formal sense, but it could also just be learning. So um, again, like a, a learning process would be one um, in which the um, degree of information would progressively decrease so that um, as you learn to use a machine, for example, the machine would transmit less and less information to you on the information theoretic conception, um, which is, uh, again, sort of paradoxical, where we think that um, learning, like becoming an expert in the use of a machine um, in our sort of everyday understanding of information is precisely becoming uh, attuned to more and more information about the machine, you, you learn to appreciate, you know, if a machine makes this kind of sound, it means that, you know, this part needs to be adjusted or um, you learn what, the, what it feels like when the machine is operating correctly or incorrectly. Um, you learn all kinds to absorb all kinds of information from the machine uh, as you become an expert in the use of that machine. Um, whereas uh, on this information theory conception, we should be thinking of it in, in the opposite direction where, um, uh, you, as you become an expert in the use of the machine, you are progressively um, receiving less and less information um, from the machine. So it's it's this kind of disjunction between the information theory conception of, of um, learning and receiving information and our sort of everyday conception of uh, learning that Simon Do is highlighting here. Okay, uh, so if we have no um, comments and or questions about the last bit, um, we can and for the day? Uh, uh, just one short comment, like, um, maybe I think, like, last, next time we can discuss it, um, part about the, um, about your, uh, example, like, but, uh, information, like, uh, which, uh, comes in the person, but that can change it as well, like, the quality of information, even though the person can be, become, like, an uh, expert, and then that doesn't mean, like, uh, the, the state goes wrong, I mean, forever. So the maybe the next section is going to explain the quality of information, and that's about it, right? 
Yeah, we will definitely look at the concept of quality of information or tension of information that Simon Don wants to introduce. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see more about what exactly that consists in um, next time. Okay, thank you. Okay, great. So thanks everyone uh, and see you next week. We should be able to finish this text next week, I think.